Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Women Arscast on Arsblog.com. Apologies that this is our first episode in just over a month, but as you can maybe detect from my voice, uh, very inconveniently, I got laryngitis over Christmas and the New Year. It's taking a very, very long time to shift. It's been about a month, and this is the best that my voice has got to in that time. And it turns out that not having a voice is quite a large impediment to podcasting. So we haven't been able to put out an episode since uh, myself and Carlon Carpenter got together before Christmas. But we do have an episode for you now. And this originally, this episode was going to be in two parts. But actually now it's going to be a two-parter. Um, not least because the quality of the conversation I'm about to have, I think, really warranted that. Um, you may recall on Ask Blog News in November, we wrote an article about the kind of the lack of ethnic uh, diversity in the Arsenal women's squad and across women's football in the UK in particular. Um, and we featured many voices in that article. But I think it's probably fair to say that when we talk about this subject, about the lack of ethnic representation um, or the, the lack of ethnic diversity, in women's football, um, we don't, or, or maybe it was just me, I don't know, don't talk about the kind of the South Asian angle as much as the angle with black girls, because I think with black girls, for example, there's been um, there's been a, a quite a stark drop in representation, whereas with South Asian girls, that representation has 
really never been there in women's football. And and we're going to talk about in the next episode, in the, the second episode, we're going to have a conversation about that more generally with a couple of really well-informed guests um, around that. And we'll talk uh, more broadly about uh, participation of South Asian girls in women's football. But in this episode, um, I'm delighted to be joined by Uman Dosanj. And Uman is probably the first and maybe even the only uh, British South Asian woman to play for Arsenal women. Uh, Uman was a goalkeeper for Arsenal in the early 2000s, kind of back up to Emma Byrne for a couple of seasons. And the reason I say maybe the first British South Asian woman to play for Arsenal women is because a lot of the early years of Arsenal women aren't really documented. Um, It's not widely known, actually, that Arsenal ladies, as they were, originally in the late 80s, was really, it was an arm of Arsenal in the community. It's not nothing like we see today where it's considered like a first-team squad that's uh, integrated into the club. It was it was actually put more alongside the kind of celebrity and ex-professionals 11. It was considered more of a community or charity initiative. Therefore, the lineups from those early years just don't really exist because they weren't documented. So that's why I can't say confidently that Uman is the first and only British South Asian woman to play for Arsenal women, but it's very likely. What we do know is that Uman was the first British South Asian woman to represent England at football at any level level Um, and obviously she has a very interesting story to tell and we're going to talk to Uman about her journey into football um, from growing up in Southampton and supporting Arsenal and idolising David Seaman and and players like that and how she arrived at the club in the early 2000s and then kind of what happened afterwards and she went on a scholarship and she went to the US and you know, some of her efforts with the FA and kick it out. And then she drifted away from football for a few years, moved to Canada, opened an Indian restaurant. And we have a chat about that and the importance of food and, and cultural things like this. Um, and obviously we touch on the kind of the issue of South Asian, Asian representation, but not as broadly as we're going to in the next episode. This is very much about Uman's kind of personal experience and um, and her career and her kind of you know, her, her journey into football and I guess her journey out of football, but she describes how she's kind of coming back into those conversations a little bit more recently. So Uman is over in the UK from Canada um, and I'm really grateful to Nirali from uh, Brown Girl Sport who runs also the Kickback podcast, which is uh, deal specifically with um, South Asian girls in, in women's sport uh, for kind of uh, for arranging this, really, for reading our article about uh, the lack of ethnic diversity in women's football um, and, you know, getting in touch and, and suggesting that we do these episodes, which I'm really, really grateful to Nirali for. Um, and hopefully we'll speak to her in the second part of this episode. But she put me in touch with the man and that's that's how we managed to get this conversation. And it's a really, really interesting one about her career um, and, like, like unfortunately, like a lot of women's footballers, uh, regardless of their background, a man's career was ended by a knee injury. Um, so that you know, there's there's lots of themes like that. But um, without further ado, going to talk to a man now about her career with Arsenal, and then probably in the next week to ten days, we will have a part two of this episode looking at the more general conversation. But I think you'll really enjoy this, and I think you'll really take something from this conversation as well. 
Okay, well, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by former Arsenal goalkeeper Uman Dosanj. Uh, Uman was, uh, I believe, the first South Asian player to ever represent Arsenal women, maybe the only um, today. I'm not entirely clear on that, but Uman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tim. Um, my my first question really is just about before we kind of go into you know questions around South Asian participation of girls in football and background and things like that. Just your kind of journey, for want of a better word, or your experience of football growing up, both playing and watching, and how you got into it, and those kind of first stages of of becoming a footballer. Well, I'm one of three. I've got an older brother who's four years older than me. He always wanted a brother. He got me. And so he just used to take me into the garden and just fire shots at me. And then I got pretty okay at it. Um, He was an Arsenal fan, so that meant I was an Arsenal fan. And so I was in my club side. I actually started playing for my school. I was the only girl in the the school team at the age of six. Um, My mum happened to be a beautician at the time, and she had a a home set up. Uh, She had a little shed that she converted into a beauty salon on the side of our house. And so she was... uh, literally raising the three of us plus working at the same time, she happened to have a client that was actually from Red Star Southampton, uh, which then later got affiliated with Southampton. And they said that they have a under 10s team. It was the first team. It was the first time they ever had a team that was that young. And so when I went, uh, she took me to a training session at the time. My mom had no interest in, in watching football. Like she, she'd watch us play in the garden and, and stuff like that, but nothing organized. So she just like wait in the car I do my training session and then she'll she, uh, I walk back and then she takes me home. Um, my first training session. So I actually was very lucky to be in a setup where we had so many older players that were literally mentors to the younger kids and actually training us. So my goalkeeper coach was Sue Bucket former England international that has a crap ton of caps and was just a really lovely human. And so she saw a lot of potential in me. And she also saw that there wasn't a parent on the sideline. And uh, she asked, can I, can you take me to your parents? So as a middle child, I'm like, "Uh oh, what have I done? I'm in trouble here. And so she took me to, I took her to my mum, and she said with the right encouragement and training, I really think that she could play for England one day. And that was such a turning point for like just parental support. Like I always was really lucky that my parents were super on board with just like playing sport. They played sport as well. Um, and so I didn't have to deal with any of those kind of barriers, but just having that validation of someone who's excelled at, at an England international level to see that your kid is, is uh, this little bright spark and could potentially be something was huge. And I honestly don't think I could have attributed, like got to playing for England or Arsenal if I didn't have that from Sue. And, and it was actually really nice because I came home in 2022. So I live in Canada now and I got to sit and, and um, kind of just hang out with Sue for a bit, and we we recorded a little video together, and and to as a as an adult hear what she actually saw in me after so long was so lovely. So from there, it's just like snowboard went up all the ranks of Southampton. 
Um, I, obviously being an Arsenal fan, uh, I was the traitor from for Southampton that was literally watching the Arsenal women dominate. And so anytime they were playing Saints, I was head and toe in my Arsenal gear, which was my brother's hand-me-down kit. And I got to watch like people like Rachel Yankee and Marianne Spacey, which was so amazing. And finally, uh, just before I played for England, I went for a training session, got invited to train at Highbury with the Arsenal girls. And then uh, after I played for England, I got signed. Yeah, that, I think there's so much that's interesting there. Um, I, I guess as well about where kind of women's football was in that kind of, you know, that 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 era that you're talking about, because Arsenal were really not the only show in town, but certainly the biggest show in town. And if there was a talented young player and they wanted them, they'd usually get them. Uh, subject to other conditions, but also how important was it for you, you know, growing up in an area like Southampton, where Southampton had, you know, a, a very strong team. They have a, not necessarily connected to the Southampton FC now, but for example, the 1999 FA Cup final at the Valley, which I was at, was Arsenal versus Southampton. Like Southampton were also one of the bigger clubs, um, you know, and, and we look at, the England team over the last 10 to 15 years, the North East has been a real hotbed. How much of a difference did it make to you growing up in an area where there was a team like Southampton who at that time probably had one of the most mature women's football setups? Yeah, it was, it was huge. So to, just for us to, once we got affiliated to the men's club, it opened things up even more. Um, just to have access to training grounds, to... Um, all of these things, like we, we were really lucky to have so many women pay, paving the way and then giving back to start off with. But then we were also really fortunate in a sense of we got to play exhibition games at the Dell. And I was involved with when they were relay cutting to St. Mary's um, and just talking to the, the people about my story over there as well. So there was little kind of tie-ins at that point, And there was just so many things that the club were doing to kind of integrate us into just the club itself. So regardless of gender, it was just like trying to be inclusive of things. Obviously, things could could have been better in, in certain aspects and stuff, but just to even have access to kit. Right, we were in we we're in the same kit as the men's, um, whereas there was a lot of women's game uh, teams that were just separate from the men's, and they didn't have the same like Saints top as we did. Um, so all of those little things were really good and, and and great in terms of. I was very fortunate that we had this setup that was available, but I also was a school kid at the time as well. So even when I got scouted by Arsenal, so I went. I was still in Southampton, so I was doing my GCSEs when I was playing for Arsenal. And we would, my mum finished school, mum would pick me up from school, take me home, I'd eat, get changed, go to Southampton Central Station, an hour and a half to Waterloo, from there, half an hour or so to the tube to Arsenal, from there, like 10 minute walk to Highbury, then start running for an hour, two and a half hours and into the ball court and all those kind of things. And then I had school the, the next day. And that's a huge sacrifice that even my parents had to do there was a, we didn't I didn't make a single penny from my football career uh when I was paying because there was only really one club which was Fulham at the time that was pro and so um that was just a huge like my parents did so much just so that I could live my dreams and and uh, there's nothing like stepping out on at Highbury and 
um, and just just being a, a, a true Arsenal fan and then just to play for your club was just a complete dream come true. Yeah, and you um, you sent me uh, uh, some some images of, of of your time at Arsenal, and you know uh, photos with legends like Marianne Spacey and playing in the same team as Anita Asante, who's a friend of this site, been on this podcast a couple of times, and and really contributed a lot to the article we wrote on uh, kind of the lack of representation in women's football. Um, Alex Scott, Emma Byrne, Kira Grant, I recognise from one of your youth team photos as well. Um, before we kind of step back a bit and talk about, you know, maybe talk again a little bit about your experiences uh, growing up, um, what what was your experience like at Arsenal, particularly because, you know, you were certainly the only South Asian uh, player there in the ranks and there haven't really been any or many since. What What were your experiences like at Arsenal? I was just a kid that was so football obsessed and just wanted to play for my country and wanted to play for Arsenal. Um, I think when you go to London, it's so reflective of the country in terms of the dynamic. Um, has it always been that way in football? Not really when I was playing. Um, is it now? Definitely not. Um, but in terms of the girls, it's great. Like I think when you were the youngest in the squad as well, you tend to get taken in. Um, I remember actually pre-season, so before I got... I signed. Uh, I went on a preseason tournament uh, in Ireland with them, and and then the girls went to a club, and I'm 15, and I look, I get carded now, let alone like when I'm a 15 year old, and they were trying to like sneak me into the club, and I'm like, this is not going to work, and we had to do like the walk of shame back because they were like no mate you're not gonna do this um and I think just like uh Jenny Canty when I was at, so I started playing in the first team and then Emma Byrne joined as well so I was mainly in the reserves and so I was so young that I was still just learning everything um and that was just great uh just playing with all of those girls like I remember my first training session and Rachel Yankee nutmegged me and and, and I couldn't even be mad at it because it was just like just watching her is just it was just just gliding it's kind of very similar to how LJ is now at, at Chelsea, right? It was just that kind of feel. Um, so I wasn't even mad that she scored past me and not made me, to be fair. But yeah, like the girls have always been good. I think when you have a back line, um, I had Jenny Canty in my back line and a, a bunch of other different people like Casey Stoney. Anytime you get a little nudge, they're ready and and over you and 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 ready to to you know just give a few nudges back um so i think that that was kind of really nice as well um so yeah i have nothing but love for the arsenal setup and the time that i was there and and it was it was just great yeah and some of the names you mentioned there um you know like rachel yankee and yeah, Alex Scott and and Anita Asante and 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 players like that. I mean, again, one of the things we kind of probed in the article we wrote about, like the 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 lack of kind of um, certainly ethnic representation now, is that the story for black girls, it seems, is that representation was at a much better le level and has kind of tailed off. But for South Asian girls, I mean, it seems to me like it's never really been there. And I'm curious about your experiences, particularly growing up 
um, when you were playing? Were you the only uh, kind of South Asian girl playing? Did that present any issues for you at all? I know Southampton um, in and of itself is is a pretty diverse area. Like, did did any of that, I guess, I know you're at a young age, but did any of that really figure in your consciousness at all or, or was it quite frictionless? Well, I think with us, like, when you're a kid and even when you're growing up and playing football, like, I always had my brother playing we stuck my sister, like we made her the goalpost, if I'm honest with you. And we tried to like literally hit the goalpost and it, and it was awful, awful people growing up. Um, so, and then I played with my cousins and, and yeah, like my brother, sister and I were literally the only people of color where we grew up in the school system. So infant, junior, middle school, but then I went to an all girls school um, for secondary school and it was super diverse. We had football that we were playing, um, and so, you know, I don't think we had it in our mind that Asians can't play. That was never, that that, that only became a, a reality when white people kept on telling us <laughs> that there's something wrong with us, right? And so that never featured. So I grew up with Rachel Yankee. And so it didn't necessarily matter to me. Like, to be fair, like back then, we didn't have the TV coverage that we do now so the only way to to even watch the women play was because you're already in a system and so we got to see the older girls like even if it's like the under 18s team um or the reserves or the first team um we got to to watch players then and i was the kid who head and toe arsenal set up waiting for marion spacey and rachel yankee to come out and i've got a picture with them when i was like super young so to get to that to to then you know, being the team shot that looks like it should be in a sticker book, that was pretty cool. Um, in terms of the representation side of things, like we always had players and I think the the sad thing now looking back that has a deep sadness when you start to, to really kind of think about things is we come from a community and a culture where the stories of women have always been erased. Right, we come from cultures where our mums are in the kitchen making rotis, and they're the last people to eat. You know, we come from cultures where we we've like recipes. Like I'm a chef now, so recipes get lost. We have oral histories of things like this is really important, but these are only important if people see the value in you. And and I think that's the the sad thing is that not only my stories have been lost along the way, but Permi Duties as well. And she was the first pro, um, South Asian to be turned pro. And so she was at Fulham when Rancho Yankee went to Fulham. And um, so it, like, I actually had fish and chips with her yesterday, uh, just as a little catch up. But but it's just that like, it's really important that like, I think, yeah, the, the popularity of the game is increasing, especially with the Euros and then now the World Cup. But I think we keep on going backwards when there's so many people. I did a, a panel discussion with Brown Girl Sport over the weekend, and there's so many people who don't even know about me or Permi. And so it just kind of feels like we keep on going back when we've already done these milestones. And that's the sad thing is, is that we keep on going back, but then where there's not really progress, and then they're now just discovering us. So all these kids that you just wonder with 24 years, how much more we could have progressed in the game 
Um, but I also think it's just a case of, you know, what are people we keep on getting asked? It shouldn't necessarily be on the players to be like, okay, so uh, why is there a lack of diversity? And why is there a lack of like South Asian players? Like all I did, like Pammy and I did our jobs. Like we did the things that no one else has done. It's now over to everyone else. It's over to like if the FA is pumping all this money in or there's all these like the Sky Sports or whoever it may be doing this research or putting these documentaries or whatever it is, what are you doing to make it a safer place? In all the research that you've done and all the interviews that you've conducted, like firstly to to be one of 14 Football for All ambassadors for the FA and then not even be mentioned, um, it, it it also does kind of it's sad right like you work so hard like all of those those struggles of just even going like i think it's there's added dynamics on things because like whereas sue sue bucket from southampton set up just saw me as a player and f- for my potential and she's already it never because she's a female in the sport it never even crossed her mind that girls can't even play right whereas after that my parents got me a, a pro coach uh who was with the setup at at Bournemouth and so he'd never trained a girl let alone a brown girl before and it's always that thing of you know we're going to give you one chance if you're not good then this is going to be a mutually like we're going to it's that ultimatum right you're good you I'm going to train you if you're not then we're going to call it quits he became my coach until the time I went to America um and so it was just like little things like that and then there's stuff in the in the whole culture side of things as well because I don't know what it is I think one of my friends who is closer to my brother's age, he grew up with my brother, he was semi-pro, um, and he, a brown dude, he was. He knows that I played for Arsenal and I, was play, I played for England as well, and he came training with us. And it was as though he, he's a goalkeeper as well. So we were there and we were just tra- we're like just warming up, throwing the balls at each other. He did like an underarm throw to me as if I was a toddler. And so I put down the ball, I pelted it at his head, and I just wanted to check how good his, his, his hands were because like, it's that same kind of mentality. We have work that we need to do everywhere we, in the culture plus uh, elsewhere. But I think it's just that extra thing of, you know, you're always having to prove yourself to everyone. And that's exhausting because all I wanted to do was be a kid that wanted to play. Um, I'm very lucky that I... Both my parents are brown, they're both Indian, but and the, but the interesting thing is that my parents were the youngest in their families. So my my dad, he moved over when it was four. So it's almost as though I'm second generation when I'm actually first. And my mum moved over when she was 18. My mum also I've got I'm I'm fortunate and privileged in the sense of I'm fair skinned. So my proximity to whiteness, I guess, compared to a darker skinned South Asian um, was kind of there as well. And so you always kind of also, like I never really had the Bend It Like Beckham moment where my culture in terms of South Asian-ness um, and football came together in terms of the scene with the Saudi and things like that. Like I was sneaking out of weddings, but my parents knew about that. Like my dad was my partner in crime. We didn't really particularly like going to the Godra and going to the temple. So it was like his excuse to go out and, and he was just taking me to the football. So, so yeah, it's, it's a very complicated kind of thing. And there's not really 
everyone's experiences are going to be different. That's the thing, right? There's only one of me. There's only one one experience or one perspective that I can bring in it. But I think keeping keeping people going and keeping keeping stories alive is is really important. And I think the women's game, especially because we've done such a better job when it comes to keeping a tabs uh, and collating the history of South Asian men in the sport than we have with women. Yeah, you've hit on so many interesting things there. I I think more widely, just the erasure or the lack of accessibility to the history of women's sport is a big, big thing um, in and of itself. I think also, you know, you hit on something interesting there, which is, you know, when someone like myself tries to do something like this, it's like it's it's important to have conversations with people and discuss their personal experience, but also to strike that balance between not putting the onus on people and saying, okay, so thanks, what do we do about it? You know, and like putting the onus and, uh, for want of a better phrase, the solutions on them as well. And, and I think um, – you know, and and again, not equating everyone's experience because everyone's experience is very different. I think also um, with this particular question, there's not a lot of South Asian male players either um, in the professional game, in the professional men's game. So this seems so like multifaceted. And like you said, there appear to be kind of Again, for want of a better phrase, internal and external barriers. There's just, there's so, so much there. And, but once something I'd quite like to pick up on, you know, you've talked about kind of how you became a goalkeeper. Um, for example, it made me think of my niece, who is uh, eight years old, my youngest niece. And she, she's just at the perfect age at the moment because on the back of the Euros, there's been a bigger push to introduce. Uh, football um, into girls PE and so she's kind of at that age where that's starting to happen and she's a goalkeeper um, which is not usually a position that people want to play in and but she wants to be a goalkeeper because of Mary Earps yeah Um, there's that big kind of role model figure now Um, and I I guess I wanted to ask you first of all a little bit about your role models because a lot of um, women's footballers even from this generation will say that their role models were mainly male footballers but um, I guess particularly your kind of some of your role models uh, growing up and also clearly you work with someone like Emma Byrne who's a massive club legend who has since come on to be a qualified coach um when you were talking about trying to get into clubs in Ireland, I'd be willing to bet money that Emma Byrne might have been involved <laughs> in that. But I, I guess just some of your experiences in terms of those role models that you had, um, maybe even goalkeeping ones, I'm, I'm sure Sue was was probably one of the bigger ones, but but also I guess the importance of, of role models as well. Um, so my biggest role model was David Seaman. So even, so I was just, I was a kid that I had every England shirt um, and every Euros, every World Cup, uh, every friendly would be watching the games. And I'd be the kid that's crying because we lost, because we, we lose a lot, <laughs> especially on penalties as a kid. And like I think that's a really beautiful thing is that my grandma would always watch the games. Like my grandma was an Arsenal fan. And she may not have known who the players, like she recognized everyone. She knew who Ian Wright was. She knew who, who 
uh, like David Seaman was. She she had a really cute nickname for David Seaman because he had a mustache at the time. So she called him Muchawala, which means mustache guy. And um, so she knew it didn't matter if he was in his England shirt or if he was like training. She knew him. So we'd watch the games together. Uh, so David Seaman was a huge one. It, it became really cool just before I actually flew out to Ireland when I was playing for England and made my debut. Uh, Vic Akers, who was the Arsenal coach at the time, he let us know which hotel the men were staying at because they were they were coming down to play against Southampton. And so I got to meet the players. I got to talk with, with David Seaman for about five minutes. He signed my glove. He gave me advice. And um, I think it helped, like, help me then get signed on. Like, it was cool that I had this memory. So I started off with that as my kind of benchmark to go and play football for England. And then I found out that I made history as the first, or if not um, one of the first, uh, to put on an England shirt. So those role models are really cool. And, like, just the Arsenal women, like, that was a, a big thing as well. Rachel Yankee was a really big one. So I may not have had South Asian role models in sport, but I'm, I also was lucky at the time to have, you know, before I was born, Mother Jeffrey was on the BBC and she was cooking. And this woman who was proudly South Asian, wearing a sari, cooking, teaching about the culture. Um, and that was just a really lovely thing to have because we've not really had that positive representation in the mainstream. Um, so that kind of helps any kid dream beyond their color. Like we're always constantly having to prove ourselves, like I said before. And, and so it was, it was really lovely to have those kind of things, but yeah, David Seaman and, and just have kids now to look up to Mary Apps and she's done such a great job and, and I don't think Nike did her justice uh, with any of the shirt stuff, um, but she's pushing for it. And the girls now in the Lionesses squad are pushing for other girls to have access to stuff and access to pee. I was just really lucky that I had a, uh, I was, in order for us to compete at the highest level, we need to get information down to parents to be like, okay, so you need to be in a setup and learning the language of football as early as possible. I was six, played for a club at 10, played for Arsenal at 14, well, uh, played for England at 14, 15 uh, in the under 16s, was at Arsenal 15, 16, 17, 18 kind of stuff. So, so those kind of, so I was always learning the language of football really early. And so I think that's an, imp, that's a, um, a conversation that we've been saying for years and I just don't see it really getting filtered down to places and people that we want to. And that's just, that's general advice to anyone, not just South Asians, right? And and I think that the important thing of any conversation about representation, about, about access and breaking down barriers is that it's not just an underrepresentation of South Asians in the sport. There is an underrepresentation of black players still. There is an underrepresentation of, you know, Chinese, Japanese, like Southeast Asian, um, Arab players, like all of the things. So you don't just fight for yourself, you fight for everyone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Yeah, absolutely. And just an underrepresentation of girls generally as well, right? So there's there's all these kind of different kind of battles um, going on at the same time. Um, I, I want to kind of move things along to your experience after Arsenal because you went on scholarship to Tennessee, right? And then I believe your career was maybe ended by a knee injury, which again, that's another whole subject about um, knee injuries uh, for women in sport in particular. So what, what happened then? after Arsenal and, and I guess the end of your play up to the end of your playing career yeah like that obviously to have literally the world at your feet to be so young and achieve so much right um I got a scholarship to the US it was actually my third attempt so I actually I've got a really tricky relationship looking back with with North America so I went to University of Santa Barbara first and before I even kicked a ball, I twisted my ankle. Like I was, it was just so embarrassing that how I done it too. Um, so then that that didn't turn up. Then nine eleven happened. So the conversation I was having with a New York based scholar, uh, scholarship and university suddenly disappeared. Uh, so then I got this other one with the hope of just playing in the WSA because that was the only feasible way of actually being a footballer. And so that's also when people started 
paying attention, I guess, to my story as well, because a not so little film called Bend It Like Beckham came out and I was actually living it in real time. So I'd already played for England, well, Southampton, Hampshire, England, then Arsenal. I had a scholarship already in the bag. I was doing my A-levels. My, it was actually my brother's wedding that we were planning. Not, I don't have an older sister. Um, and so all of that was kind of happening at the same time as the movie. Then the Telegraph picked up the story. It ran with a headline of uh, she bends it like Beckham and saves it like semen. Then that just opened up the doors like to, to have your your story and even Gurinder Chadha said like that it took a really long time for the movie to even get picked up because the idea of a South Asian let alone a South Asian woman playing football didn't seem possible and that's just that's just like I was just doing what I was doing and just to know that people with power storyteller power, uh, positions of power didn't think you would ever be possible. Um, I think everyone's, every child of an immigrant has an FU project as well. So it just kind of stirs you on as well. Uh, so yeah, I went to the States for a bit. I discovered that the university wasn't the greatest. The level of education, level of football wasn't great. So I decided to come back and uh, go to Brunel instead. I was actually in, I my, my degree ended up being business management with sports science, majoring in marketing. I was in the same class as Tony Adams, um, but he did one year and then they gave him an honorary degree. <laughs> and and um, so the whole idea, because the game wasn't quite, like there was a few pro outfits, but even that, like you would only realistically making like 16 to 18K a year, which isn't a livable wage. And so I always wanted to get into the business side of sport and I knew I was smart and um, I just wanted to show people different sides of me. And then I ended up having a knee injury and and that was kind of the end of it really. Um, after that, it's just... Um, there was a lot. There was a lot of life stuff after that and figuring it out. But I got, after graduating, I got a job with Nike in the UK and their marketing team went on to Sky, did a graduate marketing scheme for them. And then after that, like my dad got sick and it was like a now or never thing. So we ended up just quitting our jobs and moving to a country we've never, ever been to before and opening up a restaurant, which we've never done before, but we thought the Indian food was quite rubbish. So we were like, how hard could a restaurant be? And it was really hard. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really interesting. In fact, when I spoke to Anita Asante um, for, for the article we did a, a couple of months ago, and she played in Sweden for a while, and she talked about finding uh, a Ghanaian barber um, in, in Sweden and that just being, you know, like a, a real, real kind of breakthrough. Um, I, I wanted to pick you up on something, um, that you said there, if you don't mind talking about it, because you, you know, you referenced that nine 11 happened, you referenced that, uh, there were conversations, um, about New York, which then kind of stopped. Is that directly attributed to the, you know, um, how to put this delicately, political sensitivities around people of South Asian identity post 9-11? Um, or was it not quite as stark as that? Well, it's just it, the world changed for, for every brown person. It's not just those who are Muslim. Um, looking at the Sikh community as well, there was hate crimes against 
people who had turbans who were actually sick and not Muslim. And so, you know, you've always got that sentiment that just, you know, people don't really know the differences between the 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 nuances but it just impacted everyone and i can't 100% say that you know my scholarship it's just the conversation stopped you, you can only do a certain amount when you keep on following up and you just hear silence and so these kind of things happen but um i'm i'm glad that i ended up doing my schooling in at brunel and and getting the foundations that i did and um so it's just like I think that was the the nice thing is when you have a movie like Bender Light Beckham that shouldn't have worked, but was this monster hit globally. And it just showed South Asians and the beauty of our culture. I think most of the time our culture gets used against us as a negative. You know, we've got smelly food and, you know, all of these kind of bad things and then people are like okay so your parents don't want you to play football or education is more important or all of these kind of things and they're always trying to find faults in us to kind of say okay this is why there's a mis this is a underrepresentation and it's on you rather than looking at the systems that are there and so it just gave us freedom and permission to just be ourselves and celebrate our culture like there's so much with with multi-generational, I come from a multi-generation family. My, like I said, my grandma lived with us our whole lives. She's the only grandparent I knew. She was incredible in terms of a woman and just uh, an icon in our lives. Um, my mom is like, she came to pretty much every single one of my games nearly. And she's she she just was was incredible at supporting. And I know that she must have got a lot of flack from not like just the community of, okay, so we see Amen at this point, but then she disappears and then you see her like make a return at the party um, or missing people's games entirely or just, you know, playing and stuff. So, so there's, there's lots of things and, and, you know, our food is also reflective of us as people. And I think food is a, an amazing thing that just should be bringing us together. And there's so many things that we could potentially be showing I think that what we have done a lack of what we haven't done a very good job of I should say is just showing the beauty in our culture right just sh showing who we are and just having everyday conversations and like the only way that you're going to care about our peoples is if you get to know them and one of the most intimate things you, you can ever do is share a meal with someone and I think there's just better ways you know i'm an arsenal fan i follow the account and i think we can do better than just saying happy diwali gunas <laughs> and and that's the thing it's just there is more than just diwali in our culture and we could be having so many more conversations and cool just unexpected under the radar stuff that's integrating our our, our culture there's the power of ayurveda and five thousand years of science that is like holistic which you know we talk about strength training and and conditioning and the importance of that especially in the women's game um but there are yoga and meditation have been part of the indian dna for five thousand years and this is all an interconnected science that we could be in incorporating there's ayurveda and foods um like when i was in england camp it was the most bland food in the world like boiled chicken doesn't mean that you're gonna get 
you know, you're going to get the protein, but there's no taste to it. Like, it, and and I think that's the thing. Like, people associate our food as being spicy, but it's just spice laden and rich. And there's rich in terms of me- minerals, and we're mainly vegetarian at home. It's very different from your like Indian takeout. And there's a regionality, like you go to the south of India and it's like coconut flavors and light and delicate and nothing has to be like heat intensive. And so there's so many things that we can be incorporating of all the world cultures, like traditional Chinese medicine. Like if we don't have these conversations, like isn't the Western way, sometimes it does we don't have answers, right? So what's the harm in just trying to find solutions looking outside of our culture too yeah absolutely a a lot of that really hit home as well like in in my personal circumstance my my wife is brazilian uh we have a we have a daughter and we speak portuguese at home we eat brazilian food and stuff like that and there are a lot i I mean possibly slightly different because it's not necessarily a stigmatized culture in this country but um you know stuff like uh brazil leads the way in stuff like vaccinations uh, so, you know, the amount of vaccinations that my daughter's had that she probably wouldn't have had if it was just up to me and dental care, for example, somewhere where the UK definitely doesn't lead the way, but Brazil really does. Like my child is going to have the best teeth. Um, but, you know, just like little kind of things like that, which are kind of different, but the same. But um, just just in closing, Aman, I, I wanted to ask you as well about, you know, you talked about you know moving to Canada and the importance of food, which is, you know, what you're doing now with with the kind of with your restaurant and everything. And but, um, you know, you did you did a little bit of work with Kick Out and the FA, right? I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the work that you did there. So all throughout my playing career, I was quite heavily involved in just just telling my story, um, speaking to kids. I was one of 14 Football for All ambassadors for the FA, uh, heavily involved in Kick It Out and supporting in that stuff as well. Um, and then, like, obviously, if you're one of the first, like, I think one of the things that the FA kind of does is that you can be the poster child for a while and, and then – you get injured and then it, there's silence. Um, there are there should be records. There should be records in the women's game of who's playing and and stuff like that. But it's just really poorly documented, and that's when stories get lost. And um, unfortunately, that's kind of one thing that kind of happened to me as well. And and so I've they're just a really hard organizations both of them to get in touch with plus you know i've done it so i'm i'm just waiting for people can just come to me now i've done my bit i'm not here to fix the racism problem um when that is uh, very much built on white supremacy and that should be dismantled as a collective um and not just have the emphasis on us figuring it out um but uh yeah so i haven't really been involved in football for a while but it's actually been quite lovely in the last little bit because since 2022 um i've been slowly guided back to the game which is kind of nice because england only really knew me as football umman and canada only really knows me as food umman and like even this year there was an article it was one of my first pieces uh in terms of major press and like i sent this note to to the 
2022, I sent a note to Southampton Library and just was trying to kind of figure out the the food ways and just sent them something about the Indo-Fijian migration to Southampton and to England because it was uh, just a food-based something. Um, they were doing a women's football exhibition because it was part of the Euros. Obviously, the Euros were supposed to be in 2021. It ended up being in 22. Um, completely forgot about it. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm there with Sue recording some stuff, catching up with her as an adult. After that, um, Miriam Walker-Khan ended up reaching out to me. I was part of a BBC thing about the lack of diversity. Then, then to be the first post for Brown Girl Sport. After that, my hometown of Southampton just recently launched a statue of me, which is really weird and out of the blue. Um, and then, yeah. And so it just kind of snowboarded on from there. And so I've just been gently guided back. And this is the first time that, you know, I thought I had to keep the two separate. Um, and I also kind of, when you, what you do doesn't necessarily feel like it was important or needed on the story isn't needed anymore kind of thing. Uh, you start kind of suppressing certain elements of you. So I kind of found myself doing that. And then this year, Food and Wine did a thing and their headline was like literally putting the football and the food together. And it was quite a beautiful thing of a homecoming of sorts and and to be now back here and just seeing friends and reconnecting with people. Um, just saw Leon Mann the other day and he was a big kick it out person when he started and now he's got BCOMs and we reconnected in 18 years. So, so yeah, it's just, it's weird. And I guess the whole point of that is just, you know, there are people who are scouting out your story now and advocating for you. And I think that's what representation really is. It's not just you, like I did my part, but now there are people actually advocating on my behalf when they see something or there's like the, the truth isn't quite there and they're just putting me back into the story, which is really lovely. And I think that's how the community should work. And, and so it's, it's, it's cool and it's, it's humbling at the same time. That's uh, I think that's a really, really nice note to end this conversation, Amanda, which has been really, really interesting. We've had a lot of kind of former players um, on this podcast over the years, and they've all got very different stories, uh, very interesting stories. Unfortunately, most of them feature barriers as well, because that has been and still is the reality for, for women in sport. But your story has been so interesting and I, I'm really really grateful for your time and in, in, in telling us your story and and your kind of your angle and 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 it's been it's been a real pleasure and it's been really really fascinating and I love having these conversations because I can tell when I keep thinking when a guest is talking I need to stick a pin in that I need to stick a pin in that I need to come back to that because it kind of gets my brain going particularly as someone who you know has not had these experiences myself so Aman, that was a very long and rambling way of saying thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. And that's all we have time for for this episode. Um, I was going to have this episode as a bit of a, um, a kind of in two parts, but I think that conversation was so interesting. I'm going to put this out on its own, and uh, we're going to we're going to come back to. Um, you know, perhaps a more general conversation about South Asian girls in sport um, with some of the people that Uman mentioned in that conversation. But I really think this kind of actually stands on its own, both in quality and in duration. So uh, we'll come back to you hopefully next week or in the next week or two and have 
more of a two-parter episode but we really hope that you enjoyed that and found that really informative and we felt that was a really important conversation to have not least because we want to keep this conversation going about um, you know, not just about representation, but about the history of Arsenal women and, and you know, trying to bring these stories um, back to life. So uh, we really hope that you enjoyed that and we will speak to you again very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.